And today we want to talk about what happens when God's glory comes as Solomon dedicates the temple. Now, there is something awesomely real about the presence of God. There's something amazing that we need more than anything else. Pastor John Piper wrote in his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. He said when he was pastoring years ago in Minneapolis, he decided at the beginning, first Sunday of a year, beginning of a new year, he preached a sermon with no practical applications. But he had been asking himself, would simply a vision of the greatness and glory of God be enough to meet people's needs? Or does it need to be three steps to an improved lifestyle? So he preaches a sermon with no practical application to begin that new year. And he drove home nervously. <laughs> a few weeks later, a couple comes up to him and said, Pastor, do you remember that sermon you preached the first Sunday of this new year? He said, oh yeah, I remember that one. They said, well, over the Christmas season, we found out that one of our children had been seriously abused by another family member. It was absolutely devastating to us. And he said, we decided still to come to church that first Sunday of the new year. And they said, to be honest, we were hurting so badly that there was not a thing you could have said to make us feel better. But our anchor was that vision of the greatness of God. Because Piper preached of how Isaiah saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train. The train of his robe filled the temple and the angels cried, holy, holy, holy. They said that vision of the greatness of God is what's carried us through. Not practical advice, but the greatness of God. And his glory. And we not only want to see his glory, we want to encounter his glory. And this is what's going to happen next as Solomon has finished building the first temple in Jerusalem. In verse 3 of chapter 6, as we pick up the story, while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and he blessed them. So Solomon blessed the congregation. And then he said, the Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord had promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. He had built the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. And verse 11, there I have placed the ark. That's the ark of the covenant symbolizing God's relationship with his people and his tangible presence in their midst. I have placed the ark there, which is the covenant, the Lord, that he had made with the people of Israel. So last week when we talked about the building of the temple, I showed you this picture. It's an artist's rendition of a cutout of the temple. It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, three stories high, as we saw last week, totally inlaid with gold. And that room at the very back was called the holy, most holy place or the holy of holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was and hardly anybody could ever go back there. In fact, there was a veil separating that area from the rest. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in half of a rebuilt version of that temple. But, but th this was the holy place, hardly, except for the high priest once a year. Nobody dared go into the presence of God. But this, th this is what Solomon built, this temple. And he said, I place the ark there. And then you notice that, that, that outer court all around the temple, that, that bricked area all around the temple. 
That's where the scene goes now. Verse 13 of chapter 6. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform seven and a half feet high, twelve and a half feet wide, and f- uh, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high, and had placed it at the center of the temple's outer court, that, that area around the temple, and right in the middle of it. And he got up on that platform, he stood on the platform, and then he knelt down in front of the entire community of Israel, and he lifted his hands towards heaven. So he gets up on that platform like I'm on a platform, and he kneels down, and he lifts his hands to heaven, which, which is, you know, we still lift our hands and worship the Lord. Sometimes we kneel when we worship the Lord. And this was this posture of giving God glory and honor and making room for him. And what, what, what Solomon does is then pray a powerful prayer. It's 29 verses long. It takes the rest of the chapter. But this is an amazing prayer that Solomon prays in, in dedicating this temple that he's just built. And he starts it this way in verse 14. Lord, the God of Israel, there, and what a great affirmation. And I want to hear amen in the house. Lord, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. Amen. Oh, they, they knew all their neighbors. They, they worshiped these man-made objects of silver and gold, bowed down, make those their gods. They couldn't speak. They couldn't move. They couldn't affect situations, but they were the gods, and they opened them up to, and opened the pure people up to demonic spirits. But Solomon kneels on that platform in front of the newly constructed temple, in front of the whole community of Israel, and he declares with his hands in the air, there is no one like you. And you keep your covenant of love. You're not just a grumpy God. You're not just a judging God. You're a God who wants to come into a relationship of love with your people. I mean, where have we ever encountered something like that? Nowhere. And, uh, and down to verse 18, he says, and he asks the obvious question, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? I mean, I've just built this temple behind me. But Lord, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? Because there is no one like you. You are awesome and great. You fill the universe. And yet, and yet you come by your tangible presence to dwell right in the middle of your people. And so he's worshiping the Lord. And then he goes on in the rest of the prayer to basically make four prayer requests. First of all, he said, Lord, would you hear our prayer from heaven? Would you hear the prayers of your people? In fact, hear from heaven is a phrase he uses often in this prayer. It's like his father had written in Psalm 18, my voice, Lord, reached your ears. Isn't that amazing? He fills the heaven. And yet he comes close and my voice actually reaches your ears, Lord. He said, Lord, may you be that way towards us. And then his second prayer request, Lord, would you be a God of justice in the midst of our disputes? My paraphrase of that is, Lord, you know us. We fight all the time. But God, we're going to need your help to to resolve things and stay together. It's a very honest prayer request. And then the third prayer request. And when disasters turn us back to you, Lord, would you forgive our sin? And he takes several verses to unpack that. In the next chapter, God will appear to him in a dream 
and refer back to this prayer and that request in specific. And he will say, I'll do that, Solomon. When disasters overtake you, I'll forgive your sin. For if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's for next week. And then there's one more, and he could have left it there, but this is so important for us because everything this temple in the Old Testament pointed to you and me as, as, as Christ's living church where we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. It points to what Jesus would do to die on the cross to bring forgiveness for every human being on the face of the earth. At this point, this was a Jewish temple. This was for Israel. But here's, here's what Solomon also asks. Lord, would you let all the nations, not just us, all the nations know your name? In fact, I want to read that for you. That part of the prayer, verse 32. Solomon prays, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this table, this temple, Lord, would you hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, hear the foreigner who comes to be among us as well. 30, verse 33 goes on to, to say, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel. And may they know that this house that I have built bears your name. What an incredible prayer. God, may it be that not just we here in Israel, but that all the nations know your name. That's why the footprint focus this morning was so important. Thank you, Pastor Anthony. I know the webs personally. They're in, in the South Pacific, reaching those islands. Why? Because whether it's South Pacific or whether it's Russia or Ukraine, and we pray for them today, and whether it's, whether it's Latin America or Australia, whether it's Europe, whether it's Africa, oh God, that all the people would know your name. That's why Jesus' last instruction to his church before he ascended to heaven was go and make disciples of all the nations, all of them. And so, so Solomon kind of steps way into the New Testament, into the new reality in Christ that these Old Testament events were pointing to and says, Lord, let all the nations know your name. And then, right, right at the end of his prayer, he concludes this way. And this is the hunger of our hearts. This is our prayer. Lord, now arise. And come to your resting place. Let your presence come to its resting place in the temple. You and the ark of your might, the ark of the covenant. And even last Sunday we sang a worship song based on that prayer. Where we, where we sang together, now arise to your rest and be blessed by our praise. As your glory now fills this place. This is what Solomon prayed. My God, now arise and may your, may your presence find a resting place and may that resting place be right here in the temple of God, right in the midst of we, your people. May we know your name and may your presence find its resting place here. I pray that all the time for Central Assembly. Lord, let your glory come. Let your presence come. Let it find a resting place here. Let us find a temple. We don't have physical temples anymore, but we 
together become the sanctuary of the presence and glory of God. That's why our first core value as a church is to have hungry hearts. It's saying, oh God, arise to your rest. Come dwell among your people. Be that God of loving kindness and grace. And it's at that moment in this story, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that we encounter God's glory. Indeed, God's going to answer that prayer right away. Because the prayer takes us to the end of chapter 6, and then right out of the gate at the beginning of chapter 7, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. You imagine that, just fire. All of a sudden, he's still kneeling on that platform with his hands in the air and the whole congregation of Israel in front of him, the temple behind him. He's in the courtyard of the temple. And all of a sudden, behind him, fire falls down from heaven. And it says it consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and, most importantly, the glory of the Lord, of which the fire was assembled. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's glory filled that temple. And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of God filled it. Wouldn't it be something if God just took over, just flat out took over? I'm open to that. I'm open not even be able to get on the platform because the glory of the Lord fills the house. The glory, the word glory in Hebrew here is kavod and it's used in different contexts, 200 times in the Old Testament glory. And it means, of course, honor and majesty. But it also referred to the tangible, manifest presence of God as it came down. This is more than positive thinking. This is the tangible presence of God. This is more than saying, isn't God wonderful? This is God himself in his awesome presence coming down the kavod of God. And, and that, that Hebrew word has a root that, that, that can mean weight, like as in heavy, but in a good way. It, it means that God wants to press upon us, not in an oppressive way, but in a life-giving way. He wants a dwelling place. Lord, arise to your rest. And may, may your temple be filled with your glory. May my heart, may my family, may the church family, may we be filled with the glory of God. Lord, press upon us. May the weight of your glory be upon us. There are times where when we're worshiping together, I can almost physically feel the weight of God's presence upon us. This is the kavod of God, the glory of God that came and dwelt among us as the fire fell and the glory of God filled the temple. And was that just for the Old Testament? No, it was just pointing to the reality of those who followed Jesus and what they could know, that every one of us could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter one, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1, Jesus had ascended into heaven after dying and rising again and it said, when the day of Pentecost came, they, the, the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly, and it gets dramatic here too, suddenly the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, from God's heaven to their house. It came from heaven and filled the house where they were sitting. And they saw, and there's the fire, 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire or flames of fire that separated and came to rest on every one of them. Every one of us has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the fire of God, like it fell after, after Solomon's dedication prayer, the fire of God came and flames of fire on everybody's head. That, and, and, and here's the important part. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues because the nations were there. God's name above all, among all the nations as the Spirit enabled them. Why? Because God's found a temple. People washed clean by the blood of Jesus who had put their faith in him. And, and he had found a temple. And he had found a temple in the gathered people, the living church there in the day of Pentecost. And he filled that church with the power of his Holy Spirit. Two chapters later, when the church starts getting in trouble, from the officials, it, it, they lifted their voices in prayer. In verse 31 of Acts 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Listen, the tangible kavod of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, you and I were made for this. Pastor Jack Hayford describes when they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he said, the inner temple of the human personality was filled with the glory of God, which, which it was designed to house from the beginning. You and I were made for the presence of God. We were made for the glory of God, even though he fills the heavens. I mean, I agree with Solomon. God, how could any house contain you? But Isaiah 66 says, Lord, here's where you dwell, with the humble and the contrite, with those who are hungry for you. There is a place of God's glory in our midst. And, and I just want to say that this is our DNA as a church. Do you realize this June 1st, we're going to be 115 years old as a church? I like to think we're older than we look. <laughs> At least I hope we are. But our history traces back to a very sovereign time back that started on Easter weekend, 1906, when an African-American pastor moved a group that was experiencing the glory of God into a building on Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. It began the famous Azusa Street revival that ran day and night for three years. In that revival, people eventually came from all over the world because God revealed his tangible glory in that place for three years. They say, Pastor Seymour, that humble African-American man, was the most God-saturated man they'd ever met, people who knew him. And Frank Bartleman, who, who was a part and an eyewitness and wrote a lot about the Azusa Street Revival, he writes this in his book, Brother Seymour, the pastor, you can imagine this, you know, up at the front, instead of a podium like this, the platform is two boxes stacked on each other said, Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty boxes, one on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting. And he, he spent it there in prayer. So he's the pastor. He's supposed to be leading the church service. Said he's got his head in the top of the two boxes, just praying. There was no pride there, Bartleman writes. The people came to meet God and he was always there. Hence, a continuous meeting. The meeting did not, can you imagine this? The meeting did not depend on the human leader. God's presence became more and more wonderful 
In fact, some claim to have seen the glory of God by night over the building. I've heard stories of the L.A. Police Department, Fire Department being called out because they thought the roof was burning, but it was the fire of God had come upon that place. He said, Bartleman himself, although he was at the heart of this revival, he said, even I stopped more than once within two blocks of the place and prayed for strength before I dared go on for the presence of God was so real in that place. What if people couldn't get past Chest, Chestnut Expressway without stopping on their way to Central Assembly, already being overwhelmed with the glory of God? As, as we would say again, God, arise to your rest. Find a resting place here of your glory and your presence and your power. Well, that first year of Azusa Street, there was a lady by the name of Rachel who was filled with the Holy Spirit very dramatically, very powerfully, the tangible power of God filled her. And she had a sister in Springfield, and uh, that Springfield sister was named Lily, Lily Corum. Sometimes her great-grandson plays. He's not here this morning, but he sometimes plays in our worship team, the guitar. Lily Corum. She's the founding pastor of Central, and it happened this way. Her sister, Rachel, filled with the Spirit in Azusa Street, came out and visited her. And... Uh, towards the middle of 1907. And they stayed up late one night. Lily was so hungry. She was in a farmhouse here in Springfield, so hungry for the power and presence of God. And Lily talked to her about, uh, or Rachel talked to her about what was happening in Azusa Street. And they stayed up midnight, and then 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and somewhere 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, June 1st, 1907, Lily was dramatically filled with the Holy Spirit with her sister from Azusa Street right there. And, uh, and then they decided, well, the morning's coming, maybe we ought to go to bed for a while. They probably only slept an hour or two. And Lily writes in her pamphlet, my experience with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. She said, we went to our beds, sleeping and resting, as if it were a whole night of refreshing sleep. It was only an hour or two. I rose at 5 a.m. They lived on a farm. I rose at 5 a.m. All my old nervous troubles and sicknesses were gone. I felt so rested and so well. My soul was basking in the heavenly sunlight of God's eternal life. Solomon prayed, O oh, arise to your rest. Find a sanctuary in me, O oh God, to rest and to dwell and what his glory can do in a moment. And Lily, out of that, had neighbors starting to come to her house, started a prayer meeting. Lily was the founder, founding pastor of our church nearly 115 years ago. 100 years ago this year, Central Bible College started in the basement of Central Assembly. It's now a part of Evangel University. What can happen when God's glory comes to rest? in a hungry heart. And God's glory comes among the people who can possibly write the script of his purpose to the ends that even every nation knows his name. And how do you respond to that? Well, we see our response described back to the story in Second Chronicles 7. The glory of God, all these people see the fire come down from heaven. The priest can't go in because the glory of God has filled the temple. And 
How do you respond to that? Well, verse 3, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. I mean, what else do you do? I mean, the glory of God will undo you totally. There's nothing arrogant that can stand in the face of the holy and glorious God. This is not our impressiveness. This is His glory. This is not me showing up at church. This is the tangible presence of God among us. And they fell on their faces and they worshipped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, He's good as love endures forever. It reminds me of that heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 4, that worship scene where the elders and the living creatures representing the whole created order, they're gathered around the throne of God in heaven. And it says in verse 8, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, not almost mighty or sometimes mighty, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and who is and is to come, who wraps up history and, and, and the future and the present. He's the beginning and the end. At the same time, he's past, present, and future. He was, he is, he is to come. And then it says, next verse, whenever the living creatures in that heavenly worship scene, whenever the heavenly living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They couldn't stay on their feet. They fell down on their faces and worshiped. And they did that in heaven. They did that when the glory of God came upon the temple in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago in Second Chronicles chapter 7. In fact, let's pick it up partway through verse 5. So the king and all the people, Solomon and all the people, dedicated the temple of God. And the priests took their positions, as did the Levites with the, Lord's, with the Lord's musical instruments, the Lord's musical instruments, which Solomon's dad, King David, had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, his love endures forever. And I'd like our musicians to come, our worship choir, instrumentalists, and in the next few minutes, we're going to just stand and read a scripture out loud together to start our worship in a moment. But i just like us to wait on the Lord this morning. I preach first and I just want us to be hungry for the glory of God this morning and just to worship Him. We're not here for us, we're for here to Him. I've been praying, God, just let your heart be filled with our worship today. Just, we worship you and you know, we're going to sing a few songs together like we normally would at the beginning of a service. And we're just going to give time to the Lord. We have almost half hour left in our service. And I will start by standing in a minute, but if you want to sit, if you want to kneel, you want to stand the whole time, it's fine. I mean, we're going to open up these. If, while we're worshiping, you just want to come and kneel here and take a step and, and say, God, I love you and fill me with your spirit. If you want to come to the altar and stand, it doesn't matter. There's no prescription for what you ought to do and there's no pressure. But I just want you to feel free just to adore the Lord this morning, just to make room for his presence in your life. And uh, we're going to just worship him as our wonderful music community leads us. But all of this, of course, points to what Jesus did for us 
and his exaltation. And that's where we want to end. And we're going to read together out of Philippians chapter 2. So I want to invite you to stand. This is how we're going to begin our worship today. First of all, we're here not because of what we did to impress God, because of what Jesus did for us. And so Philippians 2 verse 5, Paul will say, this, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he himself made himself of no reputation. You know, and he left glory, came to our stinking world, so ridden with violence and sin and evil. It was kind of God's glory in reverse. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Why? To open up the presence of God. And we saw last week, as soon as he died on the cross, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell us that that veil in closing off the holy place of God's presence was torn from top to bottom. And God said, I'm making my glory available to every one of you. But Paul doesn't stop there. And I want you to read these verses in a loud voice, strongly with praise in your heart. Let's read these out loud, all together, off the screen. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Amen.